Join us on an adventure to the 2023 Planetary Defense Conference, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Planetary Defense Conference took place in Vienna, Austria last month. Matt Kaplan, the Planetary Society's Senior Communications Advisor, will share a look behind the scenes at the conference and what it means for the future of planetary defense. Then Bruce Betts, our Chief Scientist, will update you on the upcoming night sky and the Ada Aquarid meteor shower. Now it's time for some space news. Unfortunately, the Japanese ice-based lunar lander is presumed to have crashed. The Hakuto-R Mission 1 lander, which was developed by the private company iSpace, attempted a landing on the lunar surface on April 25th. The touchdown ended in a loss of communication from the lander. iSpace CEO Takeshi Hakamata said that the mission still yielded a lot of valuable information and will help future lunar missions succeed. China has announced new plans for two of its space science programs. The China National Space Administration announced last week that its Tianwen-3 Mars Sample Return Mission, which is scheduled to launch in 2030, will likely use a small helicopter like NASA's Ingenuity. The helicopter will collect samples near the accompanying lander. The agency also announced its plans to build and launch an array of telescopes in deep space to search for habitable planets orbiting other stars. And of course, the Ingenuity Mars helicopter is back at it. The experimental drone completed its 51st flight and snapped another iconic image of its shadow from about 12 meters or 40 feet up. The Perseverance rover also makes an appearance in the image in the top left in the distance, blending into the red rocks at the rim of Belva Crater. Speaking of awesome pictures from the Red Planet, on our April 5th show, we celebrated two years of the Emirates Mars mission with Mohsen Alawadi, director of the Space Missions Department at the UAE Space Agency. He teased the Hope Probe's upcoming images of Mars's moon Deimos. I'm happy to announce that they were released last week, and they're gorgeous. You can check out these images and learn more about these stories in the April 28th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Planetary Radio's creator and longtime host, Matt Kaplan, is back. He's now the Planetary Society's Senior Communications Advisor, and he's just returned from the 2023 Planetary Defense Conference. In addition to hosting a live public event, he also caught up with a handful of this year's conference attendees. Here's his report. This year's gathering in Vienna, Austria, was my fourth Planetary Defense Conference. The PDC is the biannual gathering of planet Earth's top experts on near-Earth objects, the havoc and heartbreak an impact by a big one could cause, and how we are learning to avoid such a catastrophe. The four-day April meeting was the biggest yet, with attendees from every continent, including Antarctica, if you count the researchers who look for meteorites there. The Planetary Society is a longtime primary sponsor of the PDC. Defending our world from these threats has long been one of our core enterprises. We were joined by the International Academy of Astronautics, the European Space Agency, and NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Other supporters and sponsors include organizations ranging from the Austrian Academy of Sciences to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. In fact, the first three days of the conference were hosted by the UN at its sprawling complex next to the Danube River. 
It was there on the first day of the conference that I met four members of the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab team behind DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. It was on the 26th of September last year that DART slammed into Dimorphos, the 177-meter-wide companion to much larger Didymos. The first session of the 2023 PDC was devoted to hearing some of the early and spectacular results of the mission, including the thrilling confirmation that we really did change the course of a space rock. If you've been with us a while, you'll recognize the first of the DART folks I talked with during a break. Uh, Nancy Chabot, DART Coordination Lead at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Caitlin Shearer, DART Project Manager at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Andy Rifkin, Investigation Team Lead at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. I'm Tarek Daly. I'm the Deputy Instrument Scientist for the camera on DART, also at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Nancy, I'm going to start with you. Because as spectacular as it was, looking at these images and hearing this data, these results, I kept glancing over your way. You were just beaming ear to ear during this entire first session at the PDC, and it's easy to see why. It is absolutely easy to see why. I mean, DART has been hugely successful. And I think one of the things that's so gratifying is to see all the different data sets coming together to give this picture about not just what DART did, but what it's going to lead to going forward, what this means for developing a technology to potentially prevent impacts from hitting the Earth. You have done such a good job over quite a few years now keeping us up to date on the mission, but we do have all these other great folks for us to meet. I'm going to jump over to you, Andy, first. Not bad for a science mission, huh? <laughs> it's not bad for any kind of mission. We really did a, you know, really did a great job. The engineers did an amazing job of delivering us there and uh, allowing the experiment to happen. And then, of course, our, our international investigation team has done an amazing job of of interpreting the data, making the measurements, following this beautiful object, this beautiful comet we made across the sky, and, and uh, letting us do this work to hopefully uh, prevent impacts in the future. First human-created comet. I hadn't thought of that. Well, yeah, uh, some folks uh, that I, some colleagues I have who work on, you know, natural comets maybe don't like to hear that so much, but I, I tell them, you know, this, if, if no one had seen it before and they found it in the sky, they would absolutely be calling it a comet. It's, it's got most of what comets have. It just, you know, we, we had to make it ourselves. One of the more spectacular images, we saw the very last presenter today representing Lucia that wonderful little companion of darts. We got to talk to the head of the Lichia mission at the Artemis One, well, the first attempt anyway to launch Artemis One because there was such a great international turnout there. I just wonder if any of you have any thoughts about, I assume, the enormous amount of gratitude you must have because you got that sort of grandstand view of this impact. Lichia Cube was a huge partner uh, for DART. Without Lichia Cube's contributions, we would have only had, which were amazing anyways, our space-based and ground-based telescope measurements. But uh, because of Lichia Cube being there during the DART impact, we're able to see this fabulous ejecta, and we're able to understand more about the structure of DART and be able to understand a little bit more about the composition as well. And this is all amazing, which would have not have happened without Lichia Cube. In this very next session, we're going to be picking up the next step out at uh, Didymos, and that's the Hera mission. Um, I just wonder, anybody have thoughts about what you're hoping they'll see? Yes. So I'm 
really excited for them to measure the mass of Dimorphos. That is the largest uncertainty we have right now in beta and in the system. Um, and as the person that built the shape model in large part for Dimorphos, you know, it's great, but to actually have a direct measurement of the mass will reduce a lot of the uncertainties that we have and move us towards that more operational planetary defense capability once we understand beta as a value rather than this large range because of the uncertainty in the mass. I assume we're going to be seeing papers generated by DART, by Lichia Cube, for maybe years to come? Yeah, we've already uh, had the first set of papers come out. We're probably up to six or seven or eight by now. We're making sure by, by team policy that they're open access so, so anyone can get to them in the various journals they're published in. Looking at those amazing Leecher Cube images, like we said, looking at these uh, amazing Draco images incoming, I'm also personally hoping that, that you know, we see images in sci-fi movies that are inspired <laughs> by, you know, here's, here's what an impact in space looks like. Here's what it happens when you hit an asteroid with stuff. Uh, that, that this now sets kind of the paradigm for the next generation of people to get inspired by space, go into the movies inspired by sci-fi. Nancy, where do we go from here? I mean, other than seeing this data continue to come in and papers being published. Well, it's exciting to be here just right now at the Planetary Defense Conference where we're sharing all of this. We've got numerous team members here and we're sharing it with the international community. There's going to be some great discussions here about what are those next steps, what goes forward. We're excited about Hera, Neo Surveyor, finding the asteroids. We can't do anything about them if we don't know where they are. It's all going to be part of this larger strategy. You know, and then I was uh, part of the Decadal Survey as well. And so I'm very excited about what goes forward, that DART was just the start, that we're opening up this whole era of pioneering planetary defense and taking steps after step after step to make this future that we want to live in. Thank you, all of you. And beyond that, thank you to you proud parents and everybody else who contributed to this mission. Maybe our most dramatic step ever toward achieving one of the primary initiatives of my organization, the Planetary Society, Planetary Defense, defending us from that rock out there that has our name on it. It's out there someplace, right? Thank you, everybody. Oh, thank Thanks. You. Great, to, great to talk with you. Thanks for having us. The European Space Agency's HERA mission will begin its journey in October of this year. The spacecraft will make humanity's third visit to Didymos and Dimorphos in 2026, following DART and Lichia Cube. So it was appropriate that the second session of the 2023 PDC was devoted to this mission, but before it began, I grabbed Lindley Johnson, NASA's Planetary Defense Officer, for a brief conversation. Lindley, we're right outside. The second session has just begun. I don't want to keep you from hearing about the HERA mission in there, but I'm so glad to catch you again. I, I don't know, it's probably a little too grand to call you the father of the feast, but when you think of the role that NASA and the Planetary Defense Coordination Office has played in this effort, I mean, we just heard it all in that glorious report from uh, from the DART team. This has got to be gratifying. Well, yes, it is. I, uh, you see all this culmination of a lot of hard work by folks uh, over the last uh, uh, few years. Uh, but, you know, there are those of us that have been in this business for for, you know, two and three decades now, uh, when we started out when it was still a giggle factor uh, about this whole 
thing. So it's you know extremely gratifying that uh, you know our first missions have been so successful, and they have uh, been international missions as well. The participation on the DART mission by the, uh, the Italian Space Agency was, and what we got from the Lucia Cube is just uh, spectacular. Those Lucia Cube images, just I mean I've seen them on the page before, but watching them on the big screen here at the conference just blows me away. Yeah, I, I mean, their success with uh, such a small project and such a small spacecraft uh, is a uh, uh, contribution to the overall DART mission is uh, just great. And in the relative magnitude of, of uh, effort uh, has gone in, uh, you know, equally worthy of celebration as the, DART, the entire DART mission. When I walked up, and she's now gone back into the conference to hear the next session, you were standing with Amy Meinzer. Is it safe to say the next big effort in space by NASA and the PDCO? Yes, absolutely. The NEO Surveyor mission is one that uh, has been in the works for a while, as, uh, as you know. And uh, we now have it on its way for development, full-scale development, and uh, launch uh, not later than uh, 2028. Uh, and that is uh, going to be the, uh, the next significant step because uh, we got to find them first. Uh, we can't do anything about them in, unless we find them, uh, know what orbits are in, uh, predict. And that's what NEO Surveyor is going to do for us. It's not going to be the spectacular event, uh, you know, a dart hitting, hitting an asteroid, but it is actually more important uh, that we have this catalog of potentially hazardous objects uh, in hand so we know what we, if anything, uh, what we need to worry about and when we need to worry about it. Got to find them before we can knock them off course. That's absolutely right. Or knock, knock, knock them into a better course. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, better way to put it. Um, you already said it. You have been at this for decades now. And when you look at that crowd in there, which I, I'm just assuming is the biggest that has ever attended a PDC, and then we have all the people participating virtually, you said that we're past the giggle factor. We really do seem to be well past that. This now seems to be well recognized by the international community as something we should learn how to deal with. Oh, yes. Well, you know, the support that we've gotten from the United Nations and the Office of Space Affairs here is, has been great, uh, you know, and they got involved with us uh, now two decades ago quite frankly, uh, when we started out the uh, uh, Action Team 14 and the NEO uh, working group here uh, with the Office of Outer Space Affairs. And to see where it is now, uh, the su support, uh, you know, very serious topic of discussion uh, within the United Nations and the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. When I started things three decades ago, I mean, that was just a, a vision that uh, we'd, we'd have this level of international cooperation. So it's, it's, it's great to see. And I was just thinking about that sitting down there at the opening uh, uh, speech by uh, Nicholas Hedman of uh, how far we've come. Thank you, Lindley, for all the leadership that you've shown over these uh, three decades and uh, for continuing to uh, lead this on behalf of NASA. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, been extremely gratifying. The people that are involved with it make it happen. You know, I just kind of, you know, direct the cats where they need to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good herding there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I wasn't the only Planetary Society representative at this year's PDC. I caught Casey Dreyer, our chief of space policy and the host of the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, moments after he delivered an excellent presentation. 
Casey, we just finished uh, the session here at the Planetary Defense Conference that perhaps would be nearest and dearest to you, although I know you have an undying interest in all everything that's being talked about here. <laughs> that, that's, that's true. I have a personal interest in not getting hit by an asteroid, <laughs> and I'm very happy to see a lot of other people share that. Certainly everybody here, and uh, working in the forefront of avoiding that situation. I've already mentioned this a couple of times uh, in other situations, but your presentation, which, by the way, was excellent, one of the best delivered, and also fascinating data, uh, talks about this enormous increase that you've been able to document in the funding of planetary defense, at least in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it helps that it, it used to be very, very small. It used to be in the single-digit millions per year. And I pointed out in that talk, less than one-third of what NASA headquarters would spend on employee travel. <laughs> Love that. Per year. Uh-huh. Right? We, could, we couldn't marshal even a third of that to spend on lurking for asteroids. Uh, that is greatly increased over the years, 4,000%. So from a very small number to a more modest number, about $150 million on average per year. And that enables all of the things that we're seeing. The fact that we were talking about results from an active space planetary defense mission, DART, is a consequence of that. The fact that we have these brand new survey, uh, ground-based survey telescopes all over the world, and of course that we're pursuing now NEO Surveyor, that is a function of the dollars we're able to put into the effort. And that's what I always point out and why I'm always obsessed with what dollars do, right? Because policy, as I point out in my talk, policy is cheap. You can write all the policy you want. Words are free. But when it comes down to actual prioritization, you have to follow where the dollars go because you can only spend those once. And now seeing it start to go into planetary defense, that tells us something fundamental has changed within the bureaucracy and within the system that is accepting the idea of planetary defense as a valid use of those limited dollars. So you have documented this tremendous increase in investment. What's behind it? And is it to a degree, I mean, as we see missions like funding, uh, missions like DART funded, is that helping to drive the investment? It's certainly a snowball effect. And I think the key part for me is at the beginning, the first couple of decades of where we were not able to make the case. And as I point out, the, the, the fundamental case for investing in planetary defense is what I said at the very beginning of this interview. We don't want to be hit by an asteroid. We've known that's the case for a long time. That's always been bad. No one has ever disagreed with that. But it was unsuccessful in driving funding to the program. And so what I think actually drove the funding was something far more prosaic and practical, which was what can planetary defense do for the bureaucracy that's funding it? in an immediate sense. So you, we can think of bureaucracies having entrenched interests. NASA has an entrenched interest in human spaceflight and science and aeronautics. And the two biggest jumps early on in planetary defense funding was related to when the human spaceflight program briefly considered going to an asteroid as its primary destination. I don't even have to guess about this. This connection was made explicit in the funding request provided to Congress that this effort, NEO observations, will not only help us find asteroids that might kill us, sure, yeah, it'll help us find destinations for astronauts. And I think those were the funding, those were the primary motivation for increasing funding at those points. And then we also have with DART a workforce organizational issue with providing Uh, resources to APL and other key NASA technology investments, that it provided a platform and an opportunity to use those in addition to doing a planetary defense effort, a planetary defense spacecraft mission. And it's this dual use, what uh, Mike Griffin, former NASA administrator, characterized as real 
and acceptable reasons for investing mm -hmm. in spaceflight. And the acceptable reasons tend to dominate the policy discourse, even if the real reasons, like saving humanity, <laughs> are pretty strong themselves. Yeah. And APL, of course, Applied Physics Lab behind the DART mission, primarily uh, primary uh, backer of the DART mission, yep. or creator of it. Um, just talking in the few moments we have about what you've seen in the conference so far, are there particular highlights that have excited you or, or <laughs> made you feel more threatened? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think obviously seeing real data from DART was just truly exciting. That, that has never happened at a planetary defense hmm. uh, conference before. We have a flight mission. I was very excited to see the planned missions from ESA coming our way, the fact that they're working on the HERA mission to follow up on the DART impact, but also the NEO-MIR, uh, their own in-space near-Earth object detection mission, very complementary to NEO-Surveyor. We see that ESA is investing in new ground-based observation capabilities. I saw talk of investments from New Zealand, JAXA, China. The fact that this global effort, th th this case has been made globally now, and again, going back to this original funding issue about what drove it, the fact that we're at a much more mature point now in terms of planetary defense that we've had this mission, it has entrenched itself successfully, I think, into the bureaucracy mm -hmm. and now can more effectively continue itself and sustain itself. And the fact that NASA does it, I think, also carries a certain imprimatur that enables other nations and other space agencies to point to NASA and say, NASA and ESA do it. This is a legitimate opportunity and a legitimate activity that we can contribute to as well. And that was truly exciting me to see all the things coming down the pipeline. So I really left this conference with this idea that DART is just the beginning. This is mm -hmm. not a one-off mission. This is the start of a new era of planetary defense uh, for humanity. I wonder also if you have a sense of satisfaction in the performance and the contribution made by our own organization, the Planetary Society, as you hear all of this data and all of this interest. Well, of course, I mean, obviously we're a co-sponsor of the Planetary Defense Conference and have been for many years. The Planetary Society was a supporter of planetary defense way before it was cool. Like, we, we understood that. That should be on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we saw this is something that's been core to our organization and really important to it. And, and even dis discuss, I was able to share with a reporter the work that our Shoemaker Neo Grant recipients do. And the fact that one of them the other year discovered a one-kilometer-sized asteroid from Brazil and, and really added to the corpus of knowledge of our threat assessment out mm. there. And the fact that the Planetary Society, through our Shoemaker grants, are directly enabling planetary defense and through the work that I do with our colleagues and, and our listeners who participate as advocates in increasing the funding, increasing the resources, that this all has a direct consequence to the long-term success of the human species through understanding the proper level of threat. Um, and again, I kept thinking about Neo-Surveyor, the fact that Neo-Surveyor now is talked about not as an if, but as a when. Yeah. And we're talking about this mission as it's engaged and building, it's happening now. And Amy was up there, Amy Meinzer, uh, who's the head scientist of that mission, showing pictures of flight hardware being built right now for Neo-Surveyor. That is just a truly uh, satisfying thing to see. And again, when I would say the Planetary Society, we get nothing financial out of advocating for these things. That makes us unique in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but I have to say, we get something soul-stirring and satisfactory from seeing the results of these missions we work so hard to support up there on the screen. And I suspect our members feel the same. Thank you, Casey. Enjoy the rest of the conference and uh, keep up the good work. Oh, it's so happy to be here with you, Matt. The PDC is much more than space scientists and engineers. 
The conference also attracts social and political scientists like Casey, as well as people who help us mitigate and recover from the more common sorts of natural disasters that plague our planet. For example, there was Leviticus Lewis, who goes by L.A. He is part of the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and has been a regular at the conference. L.A. works with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and Lindley Johnson's Planetary Defense Coordination Office. L.A., it's been a few years, but we have talked at past planetary defense conferences. Your boss, the deputy administrator, is at this one. I guess this is some kind of recognition by FEMA that this is really something you guys have to keep an eye on. That is very true. Uh, I think over the years we've been working with NASA since about 2010 formally. You know, FEMA is all hazards, but it is a unique hazard. It's a low probability but extremely high consequence events. So that makes our list of things to be concerned about. We can't yet, at least we're not very good at predicting earthquakes. We don't know how to deflect a hurricane. This, we often say at the Society, the only natural disaster that maybe can be prevented. But I don't know if that's in FEMA's area. I mean, would you be involved in the deflection effort or only, okay, now we have to get people out of the way? No, I think I think the approach that we're taking now with, the, with regard to our leadership is recognizing uh, that this is a hazard. The science of it might be unique compared to some of the other things that we're used to, hurricanes. You know, right now we're also adjusting, looking at what we might have to do for climate change, how that's going to affect operations in the future. Yeah. So. This is a uh, different kind of disaster. The science might be different, but we have an obligation to understand the science and learn that if there are things we might have to do differently with responding to a planetary defense scenario, that we're prepared to do that. If the rock is big enough, this asteroid is going to be an international challenge, not just for one nation. Is FEMA involved in these efforts? To we are to involved um, in those kind of things on a regular basis anyway, but we do it through our colleagues at the State Department via USAID, so it's not going to be an unusual event for FEMA. You know, We will lend assistance as directed by the President and lend assistance as required, uh, as requested through the regular State Department protocols that are already out there. FEMA is a domestic organization, but we have the, uh, for instance, the the international search and rescue teams that are certified in the United States. That's part of our thing. So you can imagine that if there's an asteroid impact anywhere of any kind of significance, the United States is going to be involved and we're going to lend a hand. It's good to know and good to see you folks here as well. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back with the rest of Matt Kaplan's adventures at the Planetary Defense Conference after this short break. Hi, y'all. LeVar Burton here. Through my roles on Star Trek and Reading Rainbow, I have seen generations of curious minds inspired by the strange new worlds explored in books and on television. I know how important it is to encourage that curiosity in a young explorer's life. That's why I'm excited to share with you a new program from my friends at the Planetary Society. It's called the Planetary Academy, and anyone can join. Designed for ages 5 through 9 by Bill Nye and the curriculum experts at the Planetary Society, the Planetary Academy is a special membership subscription for kids and families who love space. Members get quarterly mailed packages that take them on learning adventures through the many worlds of our solar system and beyond. 
Each package includes images and factoids, hands-on activities, experiments and games, and special surprises. A lifelong passion for space, science, and discovery starts when we're young. Give the gift of the cosmos to the explorer in your life. One of the most encouraging developments at this year's Planetary Defense Conference was witnessing how truly international it has become. After he left the stage, I introduced myself to Halilu Ahmad Shabah, Director General of Nigeria's National Space Research and Development Agency. And I'm here in um, this uh, conference uh, to discuss uh, planetary defense and also have ideas of where collaborations will take us to. We had just completed a portion of one of my favorite components of the PDC, experts led by Paul Chodas of NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies came up with an extremely realistic but entirely hypothetical asteroid encounter. The simulation progressed over the course of the conference, generating surprisingly real concern and anxiety among the attendees and giving them a great path for exploration of how they would respond to a genuine threat. As we know, asteroids don't care where they fall. They can come down anywhere. And we saw the track of that asteroid in this hypothetical situation, which is being considered now. And a great deal of that track was over Africa. I I didn't actually notice if it crossed over Nigeria, but certainly (laughs) if it's big enough, it's going to affect the entire continent, as we saw. Purely hypothetical, of course. It's very good to see someone here representing that continent, which Uh, is not always as represented, perhaps, as it should be in a situation or a discussion like this. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, From the hypothetical scene, it crossed over Nigeria. So, yeah, I saw it it cross over Nigeria, and uh, you can imagine the size of the country. So if it's uh, the track, that is the belt or the corridor, you can see, uh, where it passed through is where you have um, the middle belt. And the Middle Belt has high population, Mm. and this is one area where uh, impact will definitely need to be protected. It passes over Abuja, which is the federal uh, capital of the country. So virtually, um, this kind of collaboration and this kind of information is very vital because awareness needs to be created and the timeline given. Um, as much as it is uh, large, we said it is so close. Here, uh, you need to, uh, to inform politicians. You also need to have larger consultation and engagement with experts so that at least you have common front when dealing with issues like this. Do you feel that there is a need for more cooperation, more participation by nations like yours that have space programs but, you know, are, are not as active in the kinds of missions we're hearing about here today? Yeah, there is a need because uh, you also need to develop capabilities. If you don't attend meetings like this, if you don't join, definitely there is no way you can build capabilities to deal with what is impending. So virtually um, it has uh, also brought to fore the fact that collaboration is needed and this is where you find the necessary collaboration by looking at what others are doing, the information that is available. So there will be that need because um, some information and some capabilities are not residing within the African countries. So definitely you need to collaborate so that you get this information and act quickly. 
some of the discussion today has talked about a not entirely successful deflection or a partial deflection, which might, let's say, avoid some major population center in the Northern Hemisphere, but drop it into some place where there are still a lot of people who are going to be terribly affected somewhere else in the world. And it's, it seems that those voices need to be heard. Yeah, uh, for, for sure, the voices need to be heard because uh, definitely the one is uh, when you deflect, um, you are deflecting it to the original target or original position where it's going to, and then you are deflecting it to another place which could be where you even have larger population. Despite the fact that they are not successful, I think we need to look for other means of dealing with this rather than the nuclear the, the nuclear bomb that we use. And considering the fact that um, a lot of it's not target, I mean, it's not even accepted legally, you need waivers to do what you want to do. Definitely, uh, there is the need for us to start thinking about what can we do uh, different from what we are doing, how can we increase our predictions and also then increase our targeting of the meteorite, meteorites and then also uh, since we are going to have knowledge, for example now we, are, we have information of about 13 years, um, okay if we deflect it, what is the potential outcome? There is a need for us to simulate to see the potential outcome of what we intend to do because at times when you deflect, you are deflecting it to where you have larger population I mean, and living where you have less population. So this is essential. It's an essential discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Shaba, and enjoy the conference. Thank you so much. The Planetary Society has sponsored a public event at each of the Planetary Defense Conferences. This one brought hundreds of conference attendees and Viennese to a cineplex in a huge shopping mall not far from the conference. I watched and was enthralled by the IMAX documentary Asteroid Hunters. See it if you can. You won't just witness a spectacularly filmed introduction to planetary defense. You'll also see many planetary defense leaders whom we've hosted here on Planetary Radio. Several of those stars joined me for a fascinating panel discussion following the screening. And one of the conference attendees who joined us in the theater was our own Jim Bell member and past president of the Planetary Society's Board of Directors and professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. Jim is also principal investigator for the MassCam-Z camera on the Perseverance rover that is continuing its exploration of Jezero Crater on Mars. Jim Bell, I hope you had as much fun tonight as I did. Holy cow. It is just awesome to think about and watch a spectacular film about saving the planet. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. And you didn't just come here to see the film and join us tonight. I mean, you also made a presentation today, which because of this program we just finished, I missed. Yeah, one of the things that uh, that we're doing, you know, I work with asteroid science and missions, and, uh, and we're trying to put together a, a, a new kind of mission tapping into some of the many, many space agencies around the world now. 77 space agencies around the world now. Lots of folks who want to get involved in space science missions but don't have the experience. So we created at ASU, we created an organization called the Milo Space Science Institute. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's a member organization like the European Space Agency. And our job is to try to build consortia of universities, companies, uh, uh, space agencies, anyone who wants to do more space science but hasn't had the opportunity. 
So we partnered with Lockheed and I gave a presentation about uh, how we're trying to put a mission together to Apophis, the potentially hazardous asteroid Apophis. You've been attending the conference up until this point. What are any general impressions? Well, I think this has been the first conference. I've gone to several of these. This is the first one where uh, we've got a lot of data being shown mm. from missions that are motivated by planetary defense, like DART, right? And to see actual data from missions that the community has been dreaming about for decades, you know, let's let's get planetary defense out there and doing things with missions like we do with Mars and the moon and Venus and Saturn, you know, let's get some real boots on the ground kind of uh, data going. And, and it was just so exciting to see those results in great detail today. Our past president, president of the Planetary Society for many years and still very much a member of our board. What I have been told is that our board is uh, a solid believer in the place of planetary defense as one of the major initiatives of the society. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pillar. You know, it's, uh, it's such a great combination of uh, you know, fundamental science about the solar system, studying small bodies, the primitive remains of the formation of the worlds around us, and the, the astrobiology, because these are the the objects that bring the organic molecules to the Earth and other planets, right? And then the threat that they that some of them pose to us as a species, right? It's uh, like you're fond of saying, uh, the uh, uh, Bill Nye often tells us the dinosaurs didn't have a space program, right? Well, we do have a space program, and and we use uh, some uh, small part of our uh, fantastic uh, wealth as a civilization to think about, hey, let's take care of ourselves. Let's make sure we're not we're not going to get wiped out. And you know I can't let you go without getting uh, a little bit of an update on what's happening in Jezero Crater, that neighbor to the asteroid belt. Yes, uh, things continue to go well in, in Jezero. As you know, we, we deposited our first 10 samples in a backup sampling location, and uh, now we're climbing higher up into the delta. Uh, we just took a couple of more samples uh, the other day of uh, some of these uh, fine-grained delta sediments, so those are very exciting. Ingenuity uh, has did its 50th flight. 50th flight. We were supposed to do five, and that's being used as a scout. Uh, for the rover, so that's that's great. You know, our goal is to keep on trucking, keep sampling all these interesting places in that ancient habitable environment, collect those samples, and get them to a place where the Mars Sample Return Mission can pick them up and take them home. And let's all hope that there are no big rocks with uh, uh, Perseverance's name on them before it gets its work done. Not falling from the sky, at least. Exactly. <laughs> Correct. Yep. Thank you, Jim. Great to talk to you, Matt. On its last day, the PDC moved across Vienna to the beautiful headquarters of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. My wife and I had met our next guest at the previous night's banquet. Elisa J. Hadaji of Harvard University co-led creation of a planetary defense report by the Ad Hoc Working Group on Legal Issues, part of the UN's Space Mission Planning Advisory Group. During that fascinating dinner conversation, we were among the first to learn that Elisa and her dinner guest would soon be married. The conference has just ended in this absolutely spectacular room. You know, when you, when you open a dictionary and look for the word ornate, they should just show you a picture of this room. The PDC is over. Any general impressions before we, I ask you the question that I really wanted to grab you for? Fantastic conference in an absolutely gorgeous venue. I agree with you. Yeah. 
you have played a big part in this. You were up on stage. But I, 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 what I really want to, we could talk about anything that's been covered. But what was so intriguing talking with you, especially last night during the conference banquet, are the considerations that surround the possible and maybe necessary use of a nuclear weapon. Uh, maybe I shouldn't call it a weapon, a nuclear explosive, uh, if we're going to protect Earth from one of the larger rocks that may be out there lying in wait for us. Yes, the, your point of do we call it a weapon, do, you, do we call it a nuclear explosive device? What was interesting during this conference is that in the end, it does not make a difference. It, there will be a nuclear explosion. There will be the launch of a nuclear item. So uh, it can be absolutely considered as a nuclear bomb. There has been a great deal of discussion here about the legality of that because use of nuclear devices is specifically prohibited in space. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty or even at the Limited Test Ban Treaty, you cannot send a nuclear device in space, you cannot put it around the Earth, you cannot station it, and you cannot even do a nuclear explosion, meaning that you cannot directly go to your target and explode a bomb without even having to put it around the Earth because it is going against international law. But there are ways for international law to be superseded by the UN Security Council ways that uh, these are already exist or would they have to be put in place? No, these ways already exist. So the, uh, the UN Security Council can put up a vote to authorize this use of a nuclear device for planetary defense purposes. You would need to have nine of the 15 votes of the members of the UN Security Council and no veto. Hmm. This gets into another issue, which is at, at, at perhaps as um, sociological and political as legal, and that is the degree of trust that would ha be needed for the use of these weapons, because there might be nations who, either out of paranoia or realism, might be afraid that that missile headed, supposedly headed toward an asteroid, gee, what if it accidentally heads toward my capital? Absolutely, and you have also two other problems, which are that you you could have a problem at launch, and this would mean having a nuclear explosion potentially at launch at the launch site. Mm. The second other problem is that because it's banned, you could not test these types of tools currently. So, would it be interesting to have it authorized to have a test in space? Well, this already goes against uh, international law. So, in the case of a um, of a threat of an imminent threat, you could imagine. The UN Security Council authorizing a launch, but this launch might have a problem on site and might have a problem because we have not tested the, the technology. How much of a challenge do you see this as going forward? Is it something that you think, <laughs> if and when the time comes, we'll be able to pull this off? Not technologically so much, we know we can do that, I think, but with all these other challenges. Well, I find the discourse at the PDC very positive. It opens the doors to the social scientists, to the decision makers, to the lawyers, and they're more and more involving them in, in everything, in all the discussions. And we can see that with collaboration, with coordination, we could have these conversations at higher levels. We could have the Secretariat of the UN involved in being aware of these issues and potentially making those decisions. 
Let's close with coming back to your experience here at the PDC, where I think one of the things that has been very gratifying to me, I mean, the session that we just watched was about education, both informal and formal education, but uh, the other, the political concerns, the legal concerns, which I think have gotten more attention this year. Do you, is that gratifying? Absolutely. Hearing people say that, especially in this feedback session that we were just attending, that they listened to the law and policy sessions and were not bored. To us, it's a victory <laughs> because we want to make this these legal discourses accessible to the public because we want to involve them, we want to hear feedback, we want to understand who we are talking with and not who we are talking to. Why is this planetary defense a topic that you put so much passion into? There is nothing more uniting than looking at how to protect the Earth from a large asteroid. We are all involved and it's my hope that in these situations where every single human being would be impacted, no matter how large the object would be, that there would be a push for international collaboration. Let us hope. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll close with an old friend. Nahum Melamed of the Aerospace Corporation was one of several chairs of this year's conference, along with conference founder Bill Ayler, his former colleague at Aerospace. Nahum, uh, the conference has just ended in this gorgeous room. Are you uh, happy looking back on this moments after the close of the Planetary Defense Conference? I am. I'm very happy. I think it was a great success after about a year of preparation of monthly and weekly meetings by the organizer committee. We can declare it a success. I learned a lot. I met some old friends and new friends. And I think that we have some plans for the next conference, which we want to hold around the globe. We want to hold a conference that will have an outreach to areas that were not covered to date. This is one of the lessons learned from those last few conferences. We need to engage the local communities. Local communities can spread the word across their wider communities globally. And because this is a planetary defense conference, we need to engage the planet. Uh, spreading the word, the educational element here, which was the topic that we just finished, uh, the last of the, the formal sessions here at the PDC, very close to your heart, I know, because you've been doing this in, in outreach to lots of young people. I've been doing it. It started with my own son, uh, started home, uh, educate your kids, and they will go into huge prolific trees and uh, I give talks to thousands of young minds I look at their eyes and my goal is to uh, expect them running after me and say I want to be an astronaut if I did that I'm successful so when I hear that uh, I look at the eyes I, I know that they ran they are inspired and one day they will be the next generation of planetary defenders and uh, your son is a good example of that. I didn't have the chance to tell him, maybe I will if I see him later, that uh, his presentation was both fascinating and very well delivered. So uh, good on you, passing it on to the next generation. I think this is my mission. This is my calling to pass my knowledge and my inspiration to the next generation, both at home, in my neighborhood, and in my wider community worldwide. Nahum, I hope to see you at the next PDC. 2025? Yes, 2025 it will be our next PDC. We don't know where it's going to be held. We hope that we'll find a nice exotic location. We'll know for sure in the near future. Um, and I'm looking forward to PDC 2029 to look at right. an asteroid that's passing above our head. That's going to be a once in a millennia 
Here, here's to Apophis and the awareness that I'm sure it's going to bring to uh, planetary defense on, on planet Earth. Cheers, and amen to that. <laughs> I hope I'll still be around and allowed to attend the 2025 Planetary Defense Conference as our progress toward defending Earth from near-Earth objects accelerates. As Bill Nye says, we're just trying to save the world. For Planetary Radio, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. I'm so glad that Matt is continuing to have awesome space adventures in his new role as Senior Communications Advisor here at the Planetary Society. It's awesome to have him pop back onto the show. Now let's check in with our Chief Scientist, Bruce Betts, for What's Up. Hey, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. Really good to see and talk to you. Yeah, you too. And, you know, here we are in the United States not having fun adventures in Vienna with Matt and Casey. So, you know, we have to have our own adventures. <laughs> We're way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in the night sky this week? All right. Night sky. Bright Venus, of course, still over in the west, unless it's cloudy, in which case go inside. It's brightest star-like object. Can't miss it. Mars is significantly above Venus, looking reddish. Be kind of fun over the next several weeks. Watch Mars and Venus get closer together. Very exciting as Mars drops lower. And it will also be passing through Gemini and will be hanging out near the twin stars of Gemini, Castor and Pollux, over the coming weeks. Uh, and in fact, they make a nice, nice line on May 15th with Mars, Pollux, and then Castor. And then down below them is Venus. May 5th is the peak of the Eta Aquarids meteor shower, which is uh, better than average usually, but it's a full moon this year, so that'll wash out a lot of them. Uh, it is better in the southern hemisphere than the northern hemisphere. It's good for several days before and after, or it would be if it weren't for that pesky moon. May 5th is that peak. Uh, oh, pre-dawn, I forgot people wake up in the pre-dawn. Or stay up until then. You can see Saturn looking yellowish, getting higher and higher over in the east. And uh, Jupiter's starting to try to come up. And it'll be coming up over the next few weeks. Very bright Jupiter in the east in the pre-dawn. There we go. We did it. <laughs> Yay. We move on to this week in space history. 1961, Alan Shepard becomes the first American in space with a suborbital flight. And 20 years ago, 2003, Japanese launch Hayabusa, the first asteroid sample return mission. And they've done Hayabusa 2 since then, and it's cool stuff. Speaking of cool stuff, Gesundheit. Thank you. So, did you ever wonder, why is JPL located where it is? Maybe not. But here's the answer. It's because Caltech-crazed grad students under Theodore von Karman were looking for a safer place than the campus to do dangerous rocket experiments. And uh, they settled on the Arroyo Seco, a mostly dry, small canyon area. Uh, and they did crazed, dangerous stuff up there. And their uh, JPL was built next to Arroyo Seco, uh, basically as a result, because that turned into the core of what would eventually become JPL. Who would have thought that not being able to play with rockets in your dorm room would have such an impact on the future of space? <laughs> I mean, it's really more of a guideline than a rule. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you, where in the solar system is the best 
place to go if you want to find sulfur dioxide frost with best judged by me, if there's any question. How do we do? Thankfully, we didn't need you to regulate too hard on this one because most people got it right. The answer is Io, that super duper volcanic moon of Jupiter. Indeed, it spews out plumes of sulfur dioxide that go up hundreds of kilometers and then uh, freeze out and fall as a frost and form the white stuff that you see in the pizza moon's pictures with all of its multiple colors. The white tends to, is often sulfur dioxide frost. I love that you call it the pizza moon because a lot of people wrote in to call it pizza moon. <laughs> uh, but our winner this week is John Hernandez from Colorado, USA. And you get a copy of Phil Plate's Under Alien Skies. So I'll be sending you my personal copy that I got, which is awesome. I love too. so many people. Anytime you talk about IO, everybody writes in to say, IO, IO, it's off to work we go. A whole whole musical number in almost every single message. So that, that was lovely as well. Wow. Didn't expect that. I liked this message, too, from Randall Henderson in Oregon, USA, who said, it's definitely the best place, especially since you didn't say safest or least likely to horribly die on. <laughs> That's true. That was not part of the question. That was not. I don't know. What would be the safest place to do that? Mm. A laboratory on Earth. But I also ruled that out. Just make sure you don't do it on campus. Yeah. And then there'll be a place that does space stuff in the future. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's our question this week, Bruce? Well, I went to uh, quality, high-class stuff this week. What's the official name or the official designation for NASA's toilet on the ISS, International Space Station, also to be used on Artemis II? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. That's kind of a little bonus uh, random space fact that, you know, same basic design. Because the original question is pretty funny, but I did not know that it was the same one on Artemis 2. That's super funny. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing not funny about um, excrement in space. Well, all right. You have until Wednesday, May 10th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And whoever wins this week is going to get themselves a Stay Unextinct sticker from our Planetary Society Chop Shop site. Get yourself a cool little sticker with the dinosaur. Remind yourself that planetary defense is important. Because ain't nobody got time for going the way of the dinosaurs. This is so true. Stay unextinct, everybody. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about three little fishies swimming in a pool. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with updates from the world of space science and exploration. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Earth-defending members. You can join us as we continue to push for planetary defense missions at planetary.org join. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.